0: You're listening to a Sovereign Hope Church podcast with pastor and teaching elder Adam Vinson. Amen. As you're being seated, I want to invite you to turn in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 2. Revelation chapter 2. If you'd like to follow along with us on the PowerPoint notes, those are available through our Google Drive folder that you can access through the bulletin link, so I encourage you to Each Sunday, be able to follow along that way on your tablet or uh, smartphone if you'd like. Um, But in addition, if you're ever absent and want to access our Sunday morning notes, then those are always available to you as the sermon is going on. So I encourage you to reference those um, from time to time if you need to. Uh, for those that have been with us, you know that we've been in the book of Revelation. We've been heavy in chapter 1 over the past month. Um, last week, we wrapped up chapter 1 talking about uh, our hero and our victor in Jesus Christ. We get this this image of Jesus at the very end of chapter 1 that Uh, we said, really gives us the confidence that we need for anything else that we're gonna see in the book of Revelation. The the scary images, the the warnings, um, everything that we read in the book of Revelation is filtered through this vision of Jesus who is presented as a, a great hero and a victor for us as the church. In fact, our summary sentence last week was in the midst of suffering and hardship, the church can look to the risen savior and receive encouragement to persevere in worship by seeing him as one who conquers all of our greatest. Fears, and so we're going to see in the book of Revelation. There's a lot of hardship awaiting the church. There's been a lot of hardship the church has already experienced. There's more to come. There's there's suffering that has already happened. More suffering that's to come in the future for the church. And there's these these enemies that Satan is going to to raise to power um, that are going to oppress and persecute the church. And uh, some of it will be very difficult. And there will be Christians that will lose their life for their faith and. Uh, again, John wants us to see that Jesus stands at the beginning of the book of Revelation, that he controls all of these enemies, uh, that even in the midst of death and the afterlife, we see Jesus holding the keys to those, uh, to those items, which gives us confidence. We talked about John talking about that within the church, we're a family, and so we approach the church as a family, which should give us great confidence that we don't go into this alone, uh, that we approach the future with Jesus as our hero, But we also approach the future from a stance of victory, that Jesus has already won the victory, that Revelation is simply the unfolding of God's plan. And so it should offer great encouragement to us um, as we study this book that Jesus is our hero, he's in control, and that he ultimately wins the great victory. We come now to Revelation chapter 2, and I want us to read beginning in verse 1. We begin to examine the epistle to the seven churches uh, in the book of Revelation. Um, they were in the surrounding areas to the island of Patmos, where John was uh, banished because of his faith. It says in verse 1, To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands, I know your works, your toil, your toil, If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Yet this you have, you hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Our summary sentence for this morning. Churches that maintain a meaningful presence in their community are diligent in their doctrinal purity and persistent in their love for God and each other. Churches that maintain a meaningful presence in their community are diligent in their doctrinal purity and persistent in their love for God and each other. For kids, our church is called to love truth and each other. Our church is called to love truth and each other. This is a familiar church, a familiar warning. Uh, This passage is quoted a lot of times. It finds its way into pastoral sermons, the idea of abandoning your first love or losing your first love, and just discussions that center on the passion that we should have for Jesus, the passion we should have in following Jesus, Um, the idea that uh, we shouldn't just do things out of duty, that there should be a, a real passion and a love that Um, That passion that's oftentimes found in new believers um, is sometimes referenced as a a point of reference for how to even understand what it looks like to lose your first love. Um, There's some definitely clear warnings here uh, in this uh, letter to the uh, church at Ephesus. The idea that you can be doing a lot of things really well and still be missing the boat on something really important. Um, there's great praise for this church, right? This church is doing a lot of things well, but they've they've really missed the motivational part. And it's not just something that can be overlooked and said, well, the the good outweighs the bad. I mean, there's a real threat here in this letter. Jesus says, if this doesn't get fixed, you won't continue as a church. You won't continue as a church. Now, either that means Jesus comes in and extinguishes that lampstand on his own, or simply maybe if they continue down this path, it won't matter what they do, there just simply won't be a church, that the people that were in that church will will disband and quit and stop the gathering of themselves for fellowship and for service and for worship. So there could be the direct aspect of Jesus coming in and bringing this judgment upon this church, or just simply the natural effects of gathering together without love will eventually lead to people not gathering together anymore. But there's a real threat attached to this letter that, hey, this is serious enough that if it continues, if it's not dealt with, if it's not corrected, there won't be a church at Ephesus much longer. Um, and so Jesus brings this strong uh, admonition to this church through this letter that things have to change. And so we're going to see as we unpack this letter today that churches maintain a meaningful presence when there's there's strong doctrinal purity within that church. That there there can't be a wavering. Of doctrine. Now, we live in a time and day and age where some churches are abandoning <clears throat> the real need to hang on to doctrine, that there's some wavering and some uh, compromise that, hey, we're going we're gonna to be okay with certain things that maybe in the past we weren't okay with, some compromise in doctrine, some compromise in lifestyle for the sake of gathering more people within the church. Obviously, the more you open up your doctrine, the, the, more, uh, the more you can gather people within your building. Um, There's not divisive lines maybe being drawn. And so we definitely live in a church uh, age where uh, this is going on at times, where there's been compromise in doctrinal purity, that the doctrine has been set aside for the sake of other certain things. In the name of love, oftentimes, doctrine is set aside. And I don't think we wanna miss the boat here. Jesus is saying both are very important to the health of this church. He doesn't say you've, you've focused too much on doctrine right? Like he doesn't try to balance. It's not that, hey, you've, you've valued truth and doctrine too much and you haven't loved enough. You need to back off the doctrine and love more. He he says, hey, where you're at with doctrine and purity, it's awesome. Like stay right there. Like keep pursuing truth and doctrine. Don't let that wane. Don't in the name of love, give up your doctrine. He just says, we got to bring the love back up to that same level. Okay, so it's not an either or type of situation here at the Church of Ephesus. It's not either you love doctrine or you love God and others. They both go hand in hand together. He says they have to if you're gonna maintain a meaningful presence in your community, all right? Um, Some introductory notes here uh, to get us started. First of all, in thinking about all of these churches, and like I said, we're we're gonna try to filter our church through all of these letters to these individual churches, but in looking at these churches, just to give you an idea, of why we're gonna break it down the way that we do today and how we'll do it over the coming weeks, there's a pattern (coughs) that exists in all of these letters to these churches. First, there's a greeting or an address to the church. Secondly, there's a self-designation by Christ about who he is or what he does, and it comes from Revelation chapter one. So we've already studied that vision of Jesus. Jesus is going to pull phrases and concepts and ideas from Revelation 1 and attach it to his greeting and his introduction to each church, and it's going to be relevant to that specific church. What does that church need to see about Jesus? From Revelation chapter 1, and he's going to pick apart different aspects of that, um, that image, that vision, and attach it to the letter to that church, specifically for why that church needs it. Number three, there's a Christ uh, claim of knowledge that he knows their works. Four, we're going to see Christ commending a lot of these churches for different things. Fifth, we're going to see him condemning some of their actions or some of their lack of action. Number six, Christ is gonna give a warning or a threat to each church or just about each church. Secondly, there's an exhortation to listen and to hear and to respond. And then number eight, there's typically gonna be a promise that once again is pulled from Revelation 19 through 22. Promises of judgment, promises of relief that will come based on how they respond to his warning and threat. So you've got, him, you've got Jesus pulling from Revelation chapter one at the beginning of these letters, and he's pulling from Revelation 19 through 22 to kind of cap off each letter, okay? Um, which then, I think, kind of sets us up to see that the entire epistle to each church mirrors the entire book of Revelation, okay? So think of it this way. If, if John is writing this letter, to each church, but it's all packaged together as one apocalypse, right? Like when it goes out, we talked about this, it's kind of weird, kind of awkward, probably uncomfortable. Jesus basically assesses seven churches in the area, writes letters to them, and then packages it together and sends it to the seven churches to where they read about each other, right? We said it would be odd to read about what Crossroads Church is doing well and then what they're not doing well. What Southcrest is doing well, what Southcrest is not doing well. And then the uncomfortability of Crossroads and Southcrest and Legacy reading what Sovereign Hope is doing well and what we're not doing well. And that kind of being on display for everybody. that's, That's what we have here. John writes exactly what Jesus tells him to write. And Jesus pulls from Revelation 1 at the beginning of the epistle. He pulls from the back end of Revelation for the end so it goes, to, it goes to say that everything in between is then pictured for us throughout the rest of Revelation. So from chapter 2 or chapter 4, I guess, through chapter 19, everything in between, it's what Jesus describes within these churches as happening. The persecution, the hardship, the suffering. Again, kind of a nod to the fact that what we read about in Revelation was already starting to happen and will continue to happen because this message is relevant for churches of all ages, right? Like it's not just for these churches. It's not just for future churches. All the content is relevant for all the churches of all church ages, okay? Um, So the intro has to do with the beginning. The end of each letter has to do with the end of Revelation. What Jesus says to the church in between is very relevant to what we're gonna see in the visions that come in Revelation chapter four through uh, chapter 19. Um, Every church is commended for something except for the church at Laodicea. Every church is condemned for something except for the church at Smyrna and the church at Philadelphia. So out of these seven churches, you're getting some good and some bad together predominantly. You got one church who isn't doing anything well enough to be mentioned, you got two churches who really seem to have it figured out to where there's not anything worth mentioning that they're they're at fault with. Um, But for the most part, all the churches have something good and something bad uh, to mention. Um, There's different ways to interpret these churches. We've kind of hit on this some already. Um, Some people believe these were literal churches at that time. The dispensational rapture type view typically views these as representative of specific church ages. And that basically you have seven different church ages leading up to Jesus coming back. And so, you know, kind of the first century church leading up to a certain period is best described with the church at Ephesus. And then Smyrna describes the next group of churches for the next several decades or years, and then so on. That's the kind of the second way to view it. The third way to view it is to kind of see this as being a picture of all churches for all ages. And so I would I would combine number one and number three that. There were literal churches that needed to be addressed at that time. And then there were also uh, the pattern that we see. These, these type of things, these faults and these uh, good aspects, they can be found in churches since Jesus left until Jesus comes back. This is just uh, a consistent thing that we can see um, in all of churches. So we could look at the positives and negatives, and we could go find churches in this area that, that possess the positives and the negatives throughout this epistle. I think one of the reasons that we can say that this message is not just for Ephesus, but it applies to all churches, including the other six that are going to read it, as well as all churches for all time. It says in um, verse 7, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Right, Not just to the church at Ephesus, but to the churches this message should ring true. So this isn't just for the saints at Ephesus. This is for all people who would read this apocalypse. All right. Um, Some background on the city at Ephesus. It's a city of wealth. It's a city of prosperity. There was a magnificent temple or a magnificent shrine to the goddess Diana um, in their city. It was a lucrative business, this temple. It, It probably housed thousands of workers. So a lot of people viewed this as their job. They worked at this temple where this goddess was worshipped. In addition, it produced job opportunities within the community. You'll remember when Paul shows up in Acts and he begins to preach against the false god worship. It begins to affect the silversmiths and their business in selling these trinkets that were tied to this goddess. And they get really angry about it. We'll reference that passage later. This was a lucrative business in the, in the city of Ephesus um, to worship this false god. Um, it was the commercial center of Asia, just to kind of give you an idea of this church, uh, or of the church and the, the type of environment this church was trying to exist in. I want us to pause right here for just a second and we're gonna pray. And, and the reason that we're gonna do this is because um, I want us to, to understand how serious the content is of what we're looking at this week and in the coming weeks. Um, I want us to evaluate our church in relationship to this um, because the threat here is that if this doesn't get fixed, your church stops. Your your church just doesn't exist anymore. And that, that ought to cause us to pause and say, wow, what are we about to read about that would cause Jesus to step in either passively or um, aggressively to stop a church's existence from moving forward? And so... We need to read this with open eyes. We need to be prepared to examine ourselves. And we ought to expect that at some point over the next seven weeks of looking at these churches, that there is some place that our church may need to repent of, or at least individually, there's gonna be a lot of areas where we need to repent. Otherwise, we look at this and say, Sovereign Hope's just better than all these churches, right? Like we've got all these things figured out and that can't be the case. And so I want us to pause and and be open, be open to hearing rebuke through the word of God and be prepared to repent where necessary. Let's pray. God, I pray that as we come to this passage, that we would we would see and feel the weight of the content. God, that we would be willing to examine our hearts, to examine our minds, to evaluate the role that we play within this local church. And God, where repentance needs to happen, I pray that we would have ears to hear and that we would respond appropriately. That we wouldn't just treat this as another sermon to, to evaluate and to listen to. That instead we would see this as whether our church continues or not potentially. So God, help us to, to feel the weight of the content and to respond appropriately each week that we look at it. And we ask these things in Jesus' name, amen. All right, so let's jump into the text in Revelation chapter 2, verse 1. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. Jesus reminds us of this picture from Revelation chapter 1, and he emphasizes his authority to the church at Ephesus. He emphasizes his authority. He, he draws up that image. Once again, we've just read it. We've just studied it in Revelation chapter one. And if, if we were the church at Ephesus reading the book of Revelation for the very first time, we would have literally just read it because they probably would have read the entire, um, this entire book all at one time. So he immediately draws their attention back to chapter one and says, the one who holds the seven lampstands, the one who holds the seven stars, It's he who is about to speak to you about your church. It's his authority. It's this idea that that Jesus holds their, their church in his hand. He walks amongst them as well. He knows he's active in their church. For our kids, Jesus has all authority. That rings true here at the beginning of this chapter. First of all, we see Jesus having an active presence within each church. Jesus holds them safely and walks among them intentionally. He has the authority and the power to remove one if needed. See, at the end, he's threatening this church. If you don't get this fixed, I'm going to come pull it. I'm going to come pull the plug on your ministry. We're going to stop it. If you can't figure out how to love truth and to uphold doctrine and to fight off false teachers... If you can't figure out how to do that while also maintaining a proper level of love, then just stop meeting together and disperse and go your separate ways. And he can say that and he can actually promise to do it because he is the one who holds the stars of the churches. He is the one who walks amongst the seven golden lampstands. Right? He says, I'll come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. You say, well, Who's he to do that? Well, he's the one that holds the stars of the churches. He's the one that's walking amongst the lampstands, so it'd be very easy for him to reach down and say, "No not anymore your your church doesn't exist anymore. Your church's witness will not continue your 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 light isn't shining the way that I need it to, and so therefore we're going we're going to put it out're we're going we're gonna to stop we're going to stop this church's presence in this area. and Jesus says, "I'm the one." who can make those kind of decisions. I'm the one who can make that type of call because I'm the one who holds the stars of these churches. I'm the one who walks amongst the lampstand of these churches. He has an active presence within each church. But number two, he has a detailed knowledge of each church. In walking with these churches, in being active with each church, he knows the details of each church. He knows them intimately, the good and the bad. We talked before, I think last week, this isn't Jesus looking up information on their website and saying, hey, I know what this church is or what this church does, right? I can tell you things about legacy. I can tell you things about other churches in our community. Most of that knowledge is based on what I've looked at on their websites or what I've heard their pastors tell me. I don't know those churches intimately. I don't know what those churches are doing well and where they're struggling. I don't have time to walk amongst those churches, right? Like I don't have time to have that kind of intimate knowledge of the churches in this area. I could tell you some things, but but very little that would really uh, measure up to what Jesus is presenting to these churches. He has intimate knowledge, He knows exactly what that church is doing well and what they're not doing well, not what they want you to think they're doing well and not what they've tried to hide about what they don't do well. Jesus knows all of it. Jesus is able to discern what is good and what is not so good about each one of these churches. And what I think is super helpful is that Jesus offers encouragement, rebuke, exhortation, and promise to each one of these churches, right? Like Jesus doesn't just show up and say, you guys are awful, figure it out, do better. No, like he, he gives them plans for how to fix it. He doesn't just show up except for uh, Laodicea. He doesn't just show up and give them the bad news, right? It'd be easy for Jesus to just say, great, you're doing, you're doing good in some areas, but we really need to focus on the bad stuff. No, like he shows up and really commends them for the good things that they've done recently. Now, it's not all good, right? There's some things that we're not doing very well, but I think it goes a long way to receive the bad if the good is kind of attached to it. People need to be commended at times for things. This past week in our um, staff meeting at Trinity for the, with our middle school faculty, I commended them for some of the things that they've done well recently. They've really worked hard and done well as a middle school faculty, specifically in relationship to our open house, okay? Okay. There's some things that we're dropping the ball on right now. And so we had to talk about those things too. But it was important to me to commend them because I don't want them to think that everything they're doing is bad, right? Like they need to know about the good so that they keep doing those good things. Otherwise they might take their attention off the good things to start trying to fix this thing. And now all of a sudden this becomes a problem. So Jesus says, look, you guys are doing awesome with doctrinal purity. Like don't change that. Don't stop doing that. He says, but the love has really waned in doing it. And so we need to get it back up to the same level. Don't stop doing the good things that you're doing. We just need to elevate the love aspect of what you're doing. The implication from this first section here, Christ has an ongoing care for each church whereby he knows the details of each situation. Christ has an ongoing care for each church whereby he knows the details of each situation. He's honest enough to identify the wrong, but he also cares enough to provide a plan of correction. And that's what's what's huge about this. And we're gonna see this at the end of today's sermon is that he doesn't just tell them what they're doing wrong. He tells them how to fix it. He tells them how to correct it, which is important because the stakes are high. I mean, the stakes are high here. I mean, he's talking about continuing as a church, not continuing as a church. He's talking about eating from the tree of life and being in paradise versus not eating of the tree of life and not making it to paradise, right? These are strong warnings, and he doesn't leave it to chance that they'll know what to do. He tells them exactly what to do to get back on track. He tells them exactly what to do to fix it. That's God's grace, and that's God's love, and that's God's mercy. He doesn't bring judgment upon this church without very carefully telling them what they're doing wrong and exactly how to fix it before he's going to hold them accountable to it. Secondly, the strength of the church is mentioned. He says in verse 2, I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil. But have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my namesake, and you have not grown weary. He commends them for their doctrinal zeal and their purity. For our kids, the Ephesian Church valued truth. He commends them for it. He says, I know your works. I know your toil. I know your endurance. I know how you don't bear with people that are evil. Right? This isn't a church that's compromised purity within their church. They don't have people that need to be addressed from a church discipline standpoint. Right? Like They've done the addressment that needs to be done. This isn't a church that has, has given themselves over to a sinful lifestyle and begun to tolerate behavior. Right, he says, he says, I know you don't bear with people that are evil. I know you've tested the false teachers, the apostles who come in saying they're teaching the same gospel, but they're not. And you've found them to be false. I know you're enduring patiently and you're bearing up for my name's sake. So any type of outside persecution or anything like that, they're enduring it, they're bearing it. You've not grown weary. These people aren't complaining about it. Right, they're, they're not tired, they're not exhausted, they're not thinking about quitting at this point. He says, you're enduring and you're not growing weary. He even goes on to, to highlight at the end um, that they hate the specific works of the Nicolaitans. He says, I hate, these, I hate the works of these people too. So he says, he says, you guys have gotten it from a doctrinal standpoint. You have protected your church. Your elders are doing their job. They have, they have guarded it. They've set up walls of protection and you guys have no errors in doctrine that need to be addressed. He highlights the good aspects of their church. Number one, the church had been properly grounded in truth. You say, well, how did this church get to this point where they're, where they're able to, to be this solid doctrinally? They've had the best. This church is grounded on some of the best individual Christians that were known at that time. Paul had helped plant and establish this church in a matter of three years, and it has severely warned this church of coming false doctrines. In Acts chapter 18, if you want to turn over to the book of Acts, we're going to look at a couple of passages here that highlight the great start that this church got. In Acts chapter 18, Verse 19, Paul and his band says they came to Ephesus and he left some people there, but he himself went into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. When they asked him to stay for a longer period, he declined. But on taking leave of them, he said, I will return to you if God wills. And he set sail from Ephesus. So Paul comes to Ephesus initially and drops off some people. And they begin to teach and they begin to plant the church. He comes back in chapter 19. We won't take time to read chapter 19, but all through chapter 19, if you wanna go read this, this is Paul actively ministering in Ephesus. This is where he causes riots because people are losing out on business because people are actually turning from false gods, turning from idols to Jesus. And the people that are making business decisions off of this are suffering because these people aren't buying their stuff anymore. All right, so there's a lot of crazy things that happen in chapter 19. um, A lot of anger towards Paul and his ministry. He stays for three years in chapter 20, verse 17. Now from Miletus, he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. And when they came to him, he said to them, "'You yourselves know how I lived among you "'the whole time from the first day "'that I set foot in Asia.'" serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews, how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance towards God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And now, behold, I am going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me In every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. But I do not count my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course in the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus, to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And now, behold, I know that none of you among whom I have gone gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God." and now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. Paul says, I've invested a lot in you guys. In fact, he stayed here longer than he stayed anywhere else in his, in his missionary journeys. He said, I gave you three years. I worked hard to teach you everything. He says, he says I'm innocent. I, he said, if, if you guys haven't gotten it yet, I'm innocent of that. I'm innocent of that ignorance because I've done everything that I can to pass on truth to you. And then he says, be very careful because others are coming to try to pervert that truth. And what's great about what we see in Revelation is that they yielded to Paul's advice here. They got it, they soaked in Paul's teaching and they allowed it to become their defense against anybody else that would come and try to change the gospel that their church was founded upon. They yielded to the warnings of Paul. So they, they start off with Paul being their great church planter. Uh, Priscilla and Aquila, who were um, big partners of, of Paul and his ministry, they're the ones that get left in Ephesus to start this. So back in Acts chapter 18, verse 18, Paul heads out, but he leaves Priscilla and Aquila there in Ephesus, and they begin to teach and disciple these first believers. All right, so he leaves Priscilla and Aquila. Um, Apollos shows up in chapter uh, 18, verse 24. Now a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was an eloquent man, competent in the scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus. So, I mean, they've got Paul, they've got Apollos, they've got Priscilla, they've got Aquila. Like everybody's teaching and discipling and everybody's being taught true things. Even where Apollos wasn't fully accurate, Priscilla and Aquila pull him aside. They correct some things here in uh, chapter 18, verse 27. When he wished to cross to Achaia, the brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. When he arrived, he greatly helped those who through grace had believed. Listen to what Apollos is known for. He, pro- he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the scriptures that Christ was Jesus, right? Like, they've laid the foundation here in Ephesus. Like, there's not a chance in the world that you should let false teachers into your church. I mean, they, they just worked overtime to protect it. And the church got it. Church is guarded dark, doctrinally, all right? But what can happen, and uh, even another point, 1 Timothy 1, 3, Timothy, after all these guys are gone, Timothy gets left to be the pastor of the church. First Timothy 1 Timothy 1.3, Paul says, I'm leaving you here. Here's some instructions for you. As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. And then outside sources, so not in scripture, but outside early church history sources say that after Timothy, John, who wrote the book of Revelation, pastored this church for a while as well. I mean, they have the all-star cast of leadership, right? Paul, Priscilla, Aquila, Apollos, Timothy, John. It's like, who else besides Peter did we miss that didn't come and serve in our church in some capacity? Right, so, so they have all the makings of what they need and they're properly grounded in truth, as our point number one says. But what can happen if you're not careful is that you start well, but you don't finish well. In Judges chapter 2, this happened to the nation of Israel. Same thing I think is going on here in Ephesus. Judges chapter 2 verse 7 and the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua, who had seen all the great work that the Lord had done for Israel. But then Joshua dies and they bury him. And it says in verse 10, and all the generations also were gathered to their fathers. There arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. The, the, the generations that started to come after the heavy influences of Joshua and his elders They started to lose sight of some of the things that Joshua had emphasized since they started to do things a different way. So Paul, Priscilla, Aquila, John, Timothy, all these guys poured into the church But as we start to move away from their influence, we start to lose some of their influence, right? That's why it's so important. We've talked recently, we've got to pour into our younger generation. Our kids here at Sovereign Hope have to grow up in the same knowledge and the same truth and the same action that we're clinging to right now. We've got to pass that on to them for this church to endure. But number two, the church had properly valued truth, right? So they were grounded in it. They had all these men that poured into them and they got it, like we said. God, or Christ, commends them for their work. Back in Revelation, he commends them. He says, you've weighed false teachers. You've counted them unworthy and you have rejected them. They were extremely sound in their doctrine. In fact, one extra biblical source says this church basically could see false doctrine coming from afar and false teachers didn't stand a chance when they approached the church at Ephesus. I mean, they were just squashed immediately. Like false teachers had no ground in this church. They weren't let in. They couldn't get it. They couldn't get an entrance. The elders of this church had it locked down doctrinally. He says, I know your work. I know it's good. He commends them for their effort, right? He says, I know your work and your toil. This is important. This church isn't lazy. This isn't the lukewarm warm, warm church, right? Like this isn't a church that's like, how are we just kind of growing tired of this? He says, you're not growing weary. You're, you're, you're really busy, right? This isn't a church that needs to reinvigorate programs or needs to reinvigorate its effort, right? He says, I know your effort. I know you guys are worn out and you're, you're not growing weary. You're, you're busy, you're active. Like He commends them for the fact that they are very busy and very active. They're not a lazy church. They're they're active even to the point of exhaustion. The words here in Greek are the same words that Paul uses when he was emphasizing to the church at Ephesus, I've exhausted myself. I've worked day and night for you. It's the same type of effort this church is putting forth. So there's no laziness here in this church. But again, that should be a strong reminder to us that we could be extremely busy in this church. We could be exhausted doing ministry and still not be getting it right. These guys are exhausted. Like there's there's no time left in their calendar, there's no time left in their schedule to do more, right? Like, like we've tapped out, like we have exhausted our resources, we're doing a lot of stuff, but we're still missing it. So, so they're commended for their work, they're commended for their effort, they're commended for their consistency. He says, You've been doing this for a long time, right? Like you've endured. You have remained patient. You've been bearing my namesake and you've not grown weary. You've got a church that loves doctrine. You've got a church that won't let a false teacher within a mile of them, right? You've got a church that is very busy and active. They're not lukewarm, right? They're not hot or cold. They're they're, they're very hot when it comes to doctrine. They're very hot when it comes to purity. They're very busy in their church calendar. But but he says, I have this against you. I have this against you. They've been faithful for a long time. The implication here, for a church to endure, there must be a strong emphasis placed on treasuring true doctrine. For a church to endure, there must be a strong emphasis placed on treasuring true doctrine. I think this church knew more than just what they believed. They knew why they believed it, right? They didn't just know that Jesus was the Messiah. I think this church understood, as Apollos did, why he was the Messiah from the Old Testament prophecies. This wasn't just a group of people that had sat under good sermons. These were people that had really weighed out what they had been taught and had really grasped it personally. They knew what they believed. They were teaching their kids to know what they believed. Not just so they could spout out some doctrines, but they really, I think, knew how it worked with scripture. They knew the why behind they, the belief system they had. 1 John chapter 4, verses 1 through 6, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world right? They, they were testing these people. They were measuring their theology based on their Christology. What do you think about Jesus? And if they didn't get Jesus right, they weren't allowed to be in the church. They, they got it. They were pure doctrinally. Second John chapter 7, or check it. 2 John verse 7 through 11, there's only one chapter in 2 John, says some of the same things. And this is huge for, for our church in this day and age because there are tons of false teachers and philosophy circulating today. Lots of stuff out there that's circulating today. Bookstores, videos, teachings that are available outside of this church that are false. Philosophies that are false. And I don't think we should minimize how important doctrinal purity is to God. Because Christ honors this church for upholding it. Christ honors this church for upholding it. They are commended for it, all right? But number three, there's a failure here. There's a failure The failure of the church is highlighted here. It's an abandoned love. For our kids, the Ephesian church failed in their love. He says in verse four, but I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love that you had at first. There's a lot of debate and dispute as to what exactly is meant here by this type of love. But I think what's very clear is that there's a disconnect between what they were doing and why they were doing it, right? There was a lot of things that were being done probably out of duty. We know we're supposed to do these things. We know we're supposed to do these things. We know that this is the right thing to do. We know this is the responsible thing to do. We know this is what Paul has told us to do, what Timothy told us to do, what Priscilla and Aquila told us to do. We are doing a lot of the things that we are doing because we know that we should. But there wasn't a lot of delight in what they were doing. Very busy, very active. Doing it because they knew they were supposed to do it, doing it rather than doing it because they wanted to do it. Jesus is concerned about the why as much as the what. I mean, this passage tells us very clearly he is concerned about the why as much as he is the what that we are doing. He says, you guys have got the what. You're doing a lot of great things. But man, we're disconnected from the why. And if it doesn't get fixed, what you are doing is not enough to keep your church active. I mean, that's, that's, that's crazy to think about to be as exhausted as they were, to be as doctrinally pure as they were. I mean, this is a place where you could come to hear Jesus taught faithfully in the in the, in the the culture that they were in, where all these false prophets are and these false teachings in this great big temple that worshiped a false God was present. He says, your doctrinal purity, it's not enough to keep you around. If you can't get the motivation right, then we're gonna put out this lampstand. We're gonna remove it. Doctrinal purity is important, but the motivation for it is equally important. 1 Corinthians 13, passage on love, um, really ties in with this, that there's a lot of things that we can be doing, but without love, we've missed the point. Their actions were being driven by duty alone. They were doing right, but only because they knew they were supposed to. Outwardly, they looked good, but inwardly, there was disconnect. See, this is the type of thing you might not have picked up on if you'd have just visited their church. It might have taken a while for you to figure out, wow, these people aren't really in, in love anymore with Jesus or with each other. A lot of good things they're doing, but they're doing it out of duty. First Thessalonians 1 Thessalonians 1.3 gives us an idea of what this should look like. First Thessalonians 1 Thessalonians <clears> 1.3. Paul, talking about the church at Thessalonica, says, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and your labor of love and your steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. See how they're commended for the same things, but there's some descriptive words added. You've got work, you've got labor or toil, and you've got steadfastness all present in the church at Thessalonica too. But it's the type of work and the type of labor that sets them apart from Ephesus. They've got a labor of love, right? Their their motivation is for love, not for duty for why they do the things that they do. That's where Ephesus was missing it. What was the love that they had lost? Is it love for God? Is it love for others? What is the abandoned love that they are guilty of? Hopefully, and I think I picked up on it some in our discussion groups, hopefully when we talked about what does it look like for a church to love God and what does it look like for a church to love others that you realize there was a lot of overlap in your answers. There should be. There should be, and I think because there is it's not worth trying to distinguish who have they failed to love properly. It's probably a mixture of both, right? Their love for God has waned some, right? They're not doing it because they love God as much as they're doing it because they know they're supposed to. And their love for each other seems to have waned as well. Um, We see the connection between loving God and loving others. 1 John 2, 9 through 10 is a great passage that kind of shows us that to love one is to love the other. Uh, Verse nine, it says, Verse eight, at the same time, it is a new commandment that I am writing to you, which is true in him and in you because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. Verse nine, whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light and in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes, right? You can't be, you can't be one who claims to love God and hate other people, they don't mix. First John chapter 4, verse 16. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God's ab- God abides in him. By this is love perfected with us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment, because as he is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear, for fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar, for he does not know, or he does not love his brother whom he has seen. Or sorry, he is a liar, for he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. This commandment we have found we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. I mean they're they're intricately connected. If you're not loving right, then you're probably not loving both of these areas right. You can't love God and not love other people right. You can't love other people right and not love God. They go hand in hand. So they've abandoned in some way a love for God and a love for each other. Number two, Jesus ultimately wants us hating actions and loving people. Now they've done this right with the Nicolaitans. Right? It says they've, they've hated the works of these people. But it may be that in all of their doctrinal purity, they've really missed the call to love other people. They've been so consistent and, and right in, in withholding false teachers that they've missed the boat when it comes to uh, evangelism and, and the love for people outside their church and maybe within their church as well. They aren't loving the way that they should. The implication here it's rather lengthy and I, and I posted this on Facebook, so if you are friends with me on Facebook, you can just copy it from there. Um, "A love for Jesus must be present in a church, even where right doctrine and right behavior exist for that church to continue. Otherwise, at some point, people will get tired of doing the right thing simply out of duty and will quit. Right? If 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 the duty part, if what we're doing is not motivated by love for Christ and love for each other, at some point we grow weary of doing it. They hadn't grown weary yet, but eventually they would, and that's what would lead to their lampstand going away. Right? I don't think Jesus would have actively had to come in and kill this church. Their sense of duty would have eventually run out. They would have eventually gone kaput. They would have eventually said, you know what? Why do we keep doing this? Like, who cares? And they would have stopped. They would have quit. They would have exhausted themselves. Jesus steps in before that can happen and says, if you'll get your love back, if you'll attach that love to what you're already doing, then your church will continue. Your church will endure. See, they were, they were teetering on legalism here. They were teetering on doing it because the law that they had kind of constructed in their church told them to do these things. Real similar to the Pharisees, right? On the I mean, People, people valued the Pharisees at that time, right? Like nobody said, oh, these people are whitewashed tombs. That was Jesus that had to show up, the one who intimately knows what's really going on. Everybody else said the Pharisees, man, these guys are awesome, right? Like they, 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 they love the law. They know what we're supposed to do. They're great teachers. Jesus shows up and says, man, you guys are doing some of the right things, but there's no love attached to it. As a church, we've gotta be very careful. We've gotta be very careful that we're not so busy upholding doctrinal truth that we're not so busy trying to do things as a church that we disconnect from the love part. Because at some point, if that's happened, people will quit doing the things that we expect them to do if they're only doing it because they think they're supposed to. Number four, the duty of the church commanded. What are they supposed to do about this? What are they supposed to do about this? If they're, if they're not loving each other like they should, what are they supposed to do about this? This is where Jesus comes in graciously with a plan. He says in verse five, "'Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. "'Repent and do the works you did at first. "'If not, I will come to you "'and remove your lampstand from its place "'unless you repent.'" our kids, the Ephesian church was called to repent. First of all, he says, remember from where you fell. This is important. There were specific things that they had done in the past to love. And those were the things they needed to focus on. Ephesians 1.15 actually reminds us they were known as a church of love. Ephesians 1.15 For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love towards all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you. That was Paul talking about this same church. He says, I've heard of your love for each other. Fast forward a few years. Hey, where's the love gone? You are not loving each other like you should. But but Jesus says, hey, here's your plan of correction. Remember what you had previously been doing. So he wants them to reconnect with the past because Jesus saw value in their past. He said, at one point, you were doing this correctly. Secondly, he tells them to repent of their sin. And here's where I think it would be easy to just say, let's say as a church, because I'm going to tell you, like, I think as a church, we, we probably we probably are are a lot like Ephesus in the sense that, I mean, we're, we're really good at doctrinal purity, right? Like, I value the elders that God has provided for us. I value the deacons that have been raised up within this church. I don't think a false teacher gets a footing in our door, right? Our membership process is so thorough in the way that we talk through previous history at previous churches. We're contacting pastors that know these people that come in. Like it would be hard for somebody to get through here that that believes in a totally different way that's harmful for us. Right? Like we've upheld the doctrinal purity here. We've got a lot of people in this church that can have deep conversations about theology and can wrestle with theology and can identify false teachers on Facebook that, that are posting videos and whatnot. We're, we're good at this. But we also may be missing the boat a little bit on the love for Christ in the things that we do and the love for each other in the midst of the things that we do. And here's where just generally repenting of this would be a mistake. Right? Like, it, 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 I don't want us leaving today and saying, God, forgive us for not loving like we should, help us to love better in the future. Right? Like, these people are in danger of losing their church, which means there are specific cases where they were failing to love rightly. And I think that's where we have to pause and step back. Like, this isn't just, okay, run through this, be done, have a great week because he tells them to remember the things that you used to do, which means we're gonna have to leave here this morning and spend some time remembering things that we used to do personally, where we were doing a better job of loving each other and loving Christ better. And we're gonna have to wrestle with it in such a way where we actually repent of some things that we've been doing that don't reflect the same type of love. He says, repent There's specific things that you need to repent, not just a general attitude. There's specific cases where you didn't love like you should have. And a change of mind is needed. Repentance really means we're no longer okay with not doing what we previously did, nor are we okay continuing to do what we're currently doing. That's what repentance is. He says, I want you to not be okay with not doing what you used to do. I want you to look back at what you used to do and say, I want to do that again. He says, I want you to not be okay with moving forward with the same mindset. Repentance is looking back and saying, I need to start doing that again. I need to start doing it the way I used to do it because I've, 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 I've wandered from that. What I'm currently doing needs to be repented of. And number three, return to what you previously were doing. So after you've thought about what you used to do, after you've repented of what you're currently doing, start doing what you used to do. And this is this is really neat too because There were specific things that they were doing in the past that needed to be done again, which makes us believe that repentance isn't always about starting new things, right? Repentance isn't always about coming up with some new things to do. It's about going back and doing some of the old things that you used to do that were right, that you stopped doing. That's Jesus's focus here in this passage. The church at Ephesus had Paul, Timothy, and John as previous pastors, and they still managed to lose their first love. This is a good reminder that it doesn't matter how good the pastor of a church might be. The spiritual life of a church is still measured by those who have ears listening and obeying God's word. Like, this is really important. It doesn't matter how good of a pastor I am. It doesn't matter how good of a pastor we could bring in to replace me. The level of spiritual maturity within this church will always be measured by people who have ears. Everybody in here does. People that can hear with those ears. I'm I'm not aware of anybody who can't. People hearing and responding and doing. It's not measured by the pastors. It's measured by the people hearing the pastors. It's measured by that pastor individually being a member of this church but it's not measured exclusively by the pastor of the church. I think the admonition to us would be if, if you're a member of this church and you see some of the flaws over the next few weeks of our, of our church through these eyes, that you be the change for the flaws that you see. Not that you be an expert at identifying the flaws. Right? We've got Jesus who can identify the flaws. We don't need a bunch of people that can point out the flaws of the church. Be the type of person that can see the flaws as we read through these epistles and be the change. Be the one who hears them. Because there's gonna be a lot of people in here that don't see the, the part about the love. There's gonna be a lot of people here that miss it. And maybe we're not loving like we should as a church. There's gonna be a bunch of people that don't realize that. There's gonna be other people in this church that say, you know what, that is dead on. This church does not love each other the way that we should. There's people that are hurting, that are not feeling loved. And it's the people that realize it from this, from this epistle that need to make that change, that need to be the change of that flaw, to be an active lover within this church. Not someone who says, hey, this church doesn't love very well, I'm gonna leave and go somewhere else and see if I can find a church that does. No, if you've got spiritual eyes and ears to see that we're not loving like we should, then be the lover of this church to enact the change in all of us. Implication, the true repentance involves specific action rather than vague intentions. And what I mean by that is, let's don't leave here and say, let's love better. Let's love better. No, let's leave this church and today and try to remember and think about things that could actually be done differently. I mean, think about it. Um, there's some great ways that you can show love within this church And if we're not careful, they become duty rather than delight. Probably one of the biggest ones in our church that we struggle with is is care within the nursery. Just just pause for a second and think about the fact that one of the greatest ways that you can show love to others in this church is to serve within our nursery so that people don't miss the sermon as consistently Our our nursery Our nursery rotation is small. right? We don't have a a great rotation because we, we don't have enough workers within the nursery. And so sometimes people get overtaxed because they're constantly having to serve in the nursery because people can't be here, have other things that take them away. And so all of a sudden they're serving like two, three, four times uh, in, in five or six weeks and they're missing sermons. The nursery is a great, incredible way to serve other people in the church and to love them because it puts other people in here to listen to the sermon, to, to, to reap the benefits of fellowship and gathering together. But the nursery is easy to be one that we just show up and do. And we don't do it with that mindset, right? Like I'm on the list, I'm gonna show up, I'm gonna do it because I'm supposed to do it. I don't wanna do it, I don't like doing it, and I don't always see the need for it. That's where we can reconnect and say, hey, hey!" in the past, I used to, I used to have that mindset. I'm gonna repent of that and I'm gonna connect it back to love and I'm gonna see that every time I serve in there, it's so that somebody else can be in here that I'm gonna love them intentionally. Same way with accountability groups, right? Like I can love people in my accountability group by keeping my schedule clear when I know we're supposed to meet. I show them love by showing up to hold them accountable to the word. I show them love by calling them when nobody else is scheduling our meeting and saying, hey, we gotta connect because we're supposed to love each other and this is the way that we love each other. We faithfully gather together. This is how Sovereign Hope has set it up so that nobody gets missed. Right, like These are ways that we can actively love and actively show love. And this is some ways that maybe we've been going through the motions in some of these areas that we need to repent and say, you know what? I've been doing them. I've been doing them because I feel like I'm supposed to and I haven't been doing them out of an attitude of love. And I need to confess that and repent of that and change that. I told you, some of this is gonna be hard. Some of this is gonna be hard to hear and it needs to be because I want our church to go on. I don't want our church to be awesome doctrinally and fail in the area of love, and in five years not be meeting anymore. I don't want our lampstand to go away. And if it means confessing some wrong attitudes and some wrong actions and reconnecting with love, then I wanna do whatever we can to get you to remember your past, to repent of the present, and to start in the future doing the things that you used to do. Last thing, and we'll run through this and, and wrap up. Number five, the promise for the church described there's two pictures here, either feasting on the tree of life or the lampstand removal. There's two possible outcomes for this church. For our kids, if we remain faithful, we will enjoy paradise. Jesus gives this great promise here at the end. He says, if you'll, if you'll hear me, if you'll hear me and really do this, if you'll listen and contemplate and think about things that you used to do and start doing those things again, he says, verse seven, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is, the paradise, is in the paradise of God. The church must prepare to endure until the end. To the conqueror goes the reward, Jesus says. Fight sin, make war against the devil's vices by loving Christ and others until the end. The church has to prepare to do this. Number two, the church must focus on the reward of celebration. The idea here is that we get to enjoy the tree of life, the one that we were separated from in Genesis chapter 3. You'll remember when we studied it. Adam and Eve banished from the garden, never to eat of the tree of life. And now we have the opportunity to come back to it. In Revelation 22, 2 and 14, I told you that John wants to connect it into the end of Revelation you read Revelation 22, you read about the tree of life and the tree of life being enjoyed by the saints for eternity. That's the picture for us. The implication, for us to celebrate in the end, we must maintain an attitude of love in all that we do. As you're writing that down, I'm going to read um, this verse to you, in Matthew chapter 24. Here's what's crazy is that Jesus warns, that if we're not careful, our love will go away. In Matthew 24, 12, it says, and because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold, talking about in the end times, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. And then he kind of describes what this looks like. This gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. We've got to keep a focus on loving each other in here, but also loving people outside of our church enough to where we remain a witness until Jesus comes back, that we don't let our love grow cold. Application for us. Number one, we must examine our doctrine and our actions to make sure both demonstrate purity and love. Again, this is not to say that at Sovereign Hope we've overemphasized doctrine, right? You can't. You've got to be doctrinally pure. It's just got to match up with your life. Ephesians chapter four, verse 15. Speaking the truth in love is the goal. First Timothy chapter one, verse three through seven. He's talking about leaving Timothy in Ephesus. We've already read some of this. Um, That they would, that they would. uh, It says the aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. And then the last uh, verse I want to read to you: First, uh, First Timothy chapter four, verse sixteen. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by so doing you will save both yourself and your hearers. This idea that the teaching has to be right, but your response to the teaching has to be right as well. Application. We must examine ourselves and our our doctrine and our actions to make sure both demonstrate purity and love. And then lastly, do people in our church feel loved because of your specific actions within this church? Because here's the thing, not everybody in our church has to be doing this right. If there's enough people in our church that are doing this right, then people within our church will feel loved. So the question could be, how many people don't feel loved in our church? And we could dialogue and talk about that. But I think the better question is, do people in our church feel loved because of something specific that you're doing? Is there anything that you can tag and say, people in our church ought to feel loved because I do this. This is a way that I'm trying to love people within my church. Here's some specific things that my family's doing to try to target people in this church and to show love to them. And if you can't, then there's some some time you need to spend remembering maybe things you've done in the past and things that need to be done again moving forward. Our family worship questions, which kind of tie into this. hmm? Number one, what are some of the things the Bible commands us to do and what is the why behind some of those commands? So helping our kids kind of connect the, the what and the why. But then number two, what is our family currently doing to show love to others, both in our church and outside our church? Man, there's a lot that needs to be talked about, I think, out of this. A lot of implications, a lot of application, and, and we may come back to it, and there may be some additional posts on the city to kind of keep you thinking. Because again, if we just walk out of here and say, yes, Adam, we should love better, then, then we, haven't, we haven't really dealt with the text like we need to. Because the action plan from Jesus here is that by leaving, there needs to be some time remembering and evaluating and repenting and planning to do things differently. And if we don't spend the time outside it, because we don't have time in here to do this, right? we don't have time to do it in here. And there's some personal aspects of this that need to be done away from here. I would encourage all of us to remember some of the things that you've done in the past when maybe you loved Christ more intentionally and more passionately. You loved others more intentionally, more passionately. Evaluating your current attitude behind your actions right now. What are some of the things that you're doing right now? Are you doing them out of duty or out of delight? What are some things that need to be confessed and repented of? And what are some things that you can start doing again in the future? But again, it's start doing them again. Not new things, but maybe some old things that you've stopped doing. Let's pray together. Lord, we 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 come to you and, and we're asking and praying that enough people in our church will do this. God, I don't think I don't think we're in error when it comes to the doctrinal purity of our church. I think we've we've demonstrated over the past five years that that we love truth and we love doctrine and we will teach it faithfully here, and we will guard our people from anything that would harm them doctrinally. So Father, I feel like while we can always improve in areas, that this is not a weak part of our church. But God, I don't want to be blinded by the fact that we may be doing a lot of things within this church, but we may be doing them without the right motive. And God, what's difficult is that it's hard to identify that because God, in ways that, that we can't, Christ is able to walk amongst this church and know the hearts of our people in ways that I can't and, and, and the elders can't. And so God, I'm praying that people in our church will, will pause long enough to evaluate the intent of what they do within this church. Because God, I don't want people to quit. I don't want people to quit on their faithfulness. And we've got people that have been enduring and serving. And Father, I, I know if their love stops, that that will stop as well. And so Father, I pray that if there's any confession that needs to take place, that that, that, that would take place that there would be reflection and repentance and there would be change, that we would start doing things that maybe we've previously done in the past again. God, we're praying for that so that our church endures, that our church continues. So God, bring about that conviction where needed. Father, for those that maybe see this better than others, I pray that you would help them to be the change within this church if there's a lack of love, and again, Father, it's hard for us to know that because we don't always know the motive, but if there is a lack of love, that you would help those that see that more clearly than others to be the change, to put our church back in the right direction. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Sovereign Hope Church Podcast. We trust that you've been encouraged by the word. For more information about our church, please visit our website at www.savhope.org. Again, that's www.savhope.org.